Welcome to Interesting People, Interesting Things, where the idea is to engage in a dialogue with people who have stories to share. We often find ourselves without passion. We go through the daily motions of life, not really understanding what we are working towards or why we are doing the things that we do. It can end up being weeks, months, or even years before we finally decide to pivot and change the course of where we are headed. My goal is to get ahead of that and interview people who have had some form of success or scale in one facet of their life, be it a career, a hobby, or even a weekend project to get the wheels turning and showcase all the possibilities out there. My first guest and good friend comes from Atlanta, Georgia. Taylor Shoddy has only been in the Bay for a little over a year, but he has embraced this go-getter culture and taken advantage of the many opportunities out here. From starting a multi-level platform for curated travel to working as a management consultant advising Fortune 500 firms on strategic growth initiatives and seamless integration of work streams, Taylor has his hand in everything. I'm excited he is my first guest as his perspective on what a work ethic is might surprise you and his views on organizational effectiveness are nothing less than perfect. Our interview discusses a wide range of topics from limitations to creativity and how Taylor uses techniques to overcome roadblocks, as well as the importance of taking time off and going off the grid to reset yourself. I welcome you to enjoy our discussion, and I hope you find it useful. Welcome to the show, and this is Interesting People, Interesting Things, and the idea is to engage in a dialogue with people who have stories to share. So for those of you that don't know, Taylor is a management consultant. Uh, he's been in the Bay for about a year, and he's done some actually pretty interesting things since he's been here, from starting a uh, curated travel website that focuses on uh, giving individuals uh, plans for when they travel to new cities, to working as a management consultant, uh, advising Fortune. 500 firms on basically organizational effectiveness and how to streamline processes. And then also you have a little side project that you're working on, which we've kind of discussed before. And I'm kind of excited to uh, get into that a little bit later. I always want to start out with a couple uh, rapid fire questions just to lead things off. So if uh, you could be any superhero, who would it be and why? I would have to go with Batman. Um in that the story of Batman is unlike a lot of other superheroes where he was never, the superpower is not with him from birth that he kind of became into that superpower. Um, so it kind of gave a, a, like a dark ominous kind of feeling um, as well as I think all of the actors who have played Batman in the past movies have been stellar actors. So more of a uh, hard work ethic uh, leads to success kind of thing. Yeah, it's more like the common man can, based on scenarios that happen in his life, can become, take a change and become a superhero, someone uh, to look, that others look forward to becoming or not becoming, but necessarily look up to and kind of the protector of the city, the protector of Gotham. Wasn't he more of a vigilante though? A lot of people didn't like him from my recollection of the movies. There... I mean, there's Batman versus Superman where he was a vigilante, um, I guess. But again, at the end of the day, I would say there's there's more comic books to say that he's a uh, superhero than a vigilante. Sure. Fair point. All right. Um, if you could be invincible for a day, what would you do? As in, you can't fail at anything. If I could be invincible for a day, what would I do? So if everything you did, you succeeded at for one whole day. How would you plan your day out? I would try to tackle healthcare-related problems. So you see that as a big issue right now? Oh, absolutely. When it comes to healthcare, healthcare, there's a lot of things that are 
wrong with the system today. Um, I think one of my focuses would be on like early detection, um, genome mapping, mapping genome sequencing. And if I could get that down to the science that it needs to be at today, then I think that could start recreating and helping transform the way we deliver care today. So you're about providing uh, services to people who can't afford them, so to speak, or? Not necessarily. I think it's our healthcare industry. It's just been, that's kind of really where my passion lies around. So I would Helping others or healthcare? Healthcare in general, um, about how can I, what I've learned and what are my expertise that I have and how can that be applied to serving the greater good and greater humanity. Um, I think when it comes to passion, it has something to deal with legacy. And I feel that helping make a change in the way we deliver health, the way individuals receive health, various other things like that um, would be definitely a great way to leave a legacy. So everything you do is geared towards helping others, essentially. Um, Not originally in my life, for sure. I would say as I've gotten older and I've looked more in the past and kind of saying where I want to go in the future. That's where I see a lot of my time and effort being spent towards. It's a very good cause. All right. And uh, another fun one I like to kind of throw out there is if uh, you could eat only three foods for the rest of your life, what would it be? We have shared quite a few meals together and I do know that you're quite the picky eater or simplistic, I should say. So I could probably already guess this, but I'm curious uh, as to what your three foods would be. See that one I can answer quickly. Uh fried chicken. Of course. Absolutely. Uh, macaroni and cheese, sticking with the southern fried aspect of things. And then I would say some type of pasta. I don't know if it would be either a ravioli or a manicotti or a some type of filled pasta, I would say. Gnocchi, another one of those. One of those in that pasta categories. Scenario. Yeah. So, uh, in other words, carbs, 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 something for fuel. So, you are from Atlanta, Georgia, originally, and you've been out in the Bay for about a year. Did you always plan on coming out to the Bay, or was this kind of uh, something that uh, you saw an opportunity out here and you decided to take it? Yeah, so I was born and raised in Atlanta. Um, I spent most of my time in Atlanta with a stint in Raleigh for a little bit. Um, When I moved there with my family, then went to school. In, at Auburn in Alabama, but I always went back to Atlanta. Um, I think one of my, I, I don't necessarily call anything I do as a regret, but one of the things I look back at that I wish I would have done is immediately after college, I wish I would have not necessarily moved back to Atlanta per se, but moved somewhere else um, and kind of trying to take a risk early on in my life. And if that was moving to New York, San Francisco, Chicago, one of those places, I wish I would have done that. So when I was getting older, um, I had the opportunity to travel a bunch through my career. So I was able to experience other cities and I was able to understand what the East Coast was like and the East Coast vibe, culture, um, work ethic type of companies were operating. And it was a lot of fun and I truly enjoyed it, but it was more focused on the financial services area. And I've always had a keen to IT, tech, biotech, various things like that. And might as well move to where the epicenter is. And that's San Francisco, Silicon Valley. So that's kind of really what brought me out here. So this was uh, an inevitable conclusion that you would make your way out west to the Bay. Um, if you would have asked me that maybe like five years ago, I 
wouldn't necessarily say that. I would say in the last like three years for sure. So your notions have changed about where you want to live based on what's going on in your life, essentially. Did you have any like influences or anyone that you looked up to as a kid? And it could be family members, it can be professional athletes, uh, authors, just anyone that you really aspired to be like or took an interest in? I've always understood the importance of like a mentor and kind of aspiring to be someone. Both my parents are obviously like my biggest people who I look forward to or look up to and kind of not aspire to be who they are, but aspire to be a subset of them. Um, so I would say absolutely my parents. And what about them makes them someone to look up to other than the fact that they're your parents and they raised you and obviously they did a good job, but is there any character traits or qualities or? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think for the most part for them, they were both came from low income households um, and kind of where the whole idea of the American history or American story can be um, coming from low income household in Pittsburgh and Pennsylvania area. And then working really hard to um, move up in life, both get their uh, undergraduate as well as graduate degrees and both went into the healthcare spectrum of work. Um, and then have ever since then kind of been, um, moving forward with their life and helping others as they grew upon that. Um, so I think those were definitely quality traits that I, I respect and I appreciate it. So it's their hard work ethic that you really look up to and you've kind of embodied that in what you do in life. Yeah. I would say not only hard work, but doing the right thing too. So it wasn't that they would never put someone down in order to get ahead. Um, they would always carry people with them. Um, so like for that, I mean, it took me a long time to understand that and to see that that's what they've been doing for as long as um, they have. I think uh, when I got older, I understood that they are the two individuals who kind of created me, which sounds kind of weird. But um, knowing that, I was curious on like, who are they and what makes them tick? And because if you like think about the, just like the human makeup, um, they really define who I am as a person. So I was trying to understand that and, and taking a step back and really understanding their life. So with that in mind, did you know what you wanted to be as a kid growing up? Or, I mean, I know you didn't want to come out to the Bay necessarily until you figured that out maybe after college, but did you have an idea of what kind of field or industry that you wanted to work in? No, honestly. Um, I, I still think it's it's a still trying to figure that one out too as well. Um, I have a better understanding on if I look back 10, 15 years from now and saying this is what I was able to accomplish. I know what that kind of looks like with when it comes to regards to success. So there was nothing that your parents kind of pushed you into. Like, for example, when my parents, uh, my mom, at least, she's an accountant, she's a CPA, and I kind of took after uh, that root for, you know, the, the first half of my life and into college and then a little bit after college too, because that's what she did. And I ended up working with her and you're, you didn't have a similar experience where your parents maybe did something that you wanted to do, or you kind of fell in line because that was something that you saw uh, regularly. I would say it was, it was kind of on a little bit of the opposite actually, is that both my parents were in healthcare and I saw like healthcare from a young age and seeing how great it can be, but also like seeing the negative sides and seeing the bureaucracy and the red tape and the 
all the rules and regulations that go behind it and all the amounts of work and all the, the education you need to have and various things like that, that I said I would never want to get into healthcare. And now that I look good looking for like the next steps in my life, I actually kind of am interested in the healthcare realm. It's not necessarily the patient care, what they, a lot of them or what they do. Um, it's more like the biotech side and the innovation side, but never thought about healthcare would be an exciting topic for me. Um, with regards to, did they ever pressure me into do pursuing something? I would say they did the opposite. They would, they kind of let me flourish and figure that out on my own. So then was it hard to move away after college coming to the Bay? Because you spent some time in New York with your firm doing some management consulting out there, and then you didn't like the travel and you wanted to move out West to pursue opportunities here. Do you miss home, I guess? Or are you happy that you get to spend time away? Yeah. I mean, I I see San Francisco as more or less a stepping stone than I see it as a long-term place. It's a very transient city. I agree with that. So for me, both my parents are in relatively good health right now. Um, I think that would be a different question as if they weren't. And they're both, they do really well in their career and they enjoy what they're doing. So they're in pretty good hands. So I don't necessarily need to, I can focus a lot of time on myself right now um, because I know that time, I only have so much more time until that doesn't happen or something happens that I need to, refocus my efforts on things. So, um, and they understood that too. And they kind of pushed me to follow that dream. So I think right now, a lot of the time when I'm out here is trying to make the most out of that because I know it can, there's time that impacts that. So, so what's really kind of fueled your passion to succeed out in the Bay? Cause my take is that San Francisco is honestly the land of opportunity. There's so many people out here who want to work together, who are doing interesting things, and everyone kind of wants to share and be part of something. And for you, do you feel that you're in an environment where you collaborate with individuals or do you feel like you're out here by yourself? Like, where does your passion come from? What drives you to do what you do? So is your question, do I think San Francisco is a collaborative community or like what drives me when I'm out here in San Francisco? Sure. Maybe a little bit of both. Like I want to know what about San Francisco gives you kind of this passion to want to do more. When we talk, Taylor, you're always talking about, you know, what you want to do next, like how passionate you are about like things that you're working on. And I'm just curious as to like why you feel that way. Is it because the people in this environment is just because you naturally like, you know, a very passionate person, what kind of drives you to like excel, exceed out here? Yeah. I mean, when it comes to exceeding out in San Francisco, it depends on what you which you mean by success. I necessarily don't say personally succeed. Um, but one thing that I do do is I definitely take advantage of the opportunity that I'm given. Um, I think that's really what drives me. Um, that's the one thing I love about San Francisco is not only are there, it's you kind of get in engulfed in this kind of like go getter hustle. We're changing the world mentality out here, which I appreciate. Um, but also if you take a step back, you get humility and being humble too. From being out in the Bay. Yeah. Because you see all walks of life from, you can be bumping shoulders with the guy who just was a seed round investor at Snapchat and they IPO'd and now he made $45 billion or some God awful amount of money and you could bump arms with him. And then you could walk out next door and see an individual who, um, was down on their luck and sleeping outside and 
outside in the bay and so it gives you that humility and that that that's when i said like the success i mean i think success is different for a lot of other people but i think that's what makes san francisco extremely interesting and that's kind of what helps me drive not only drive to kind of be successful per se but also understand that that humility aspect like again like anything can happen you can always be down on your luck and that if you are if you have the ability to live here and do well and things like that then you should take full advantage of it and not just go squander away so then for you what defines success i mean we can go into specifics about you're working on this project and there's metrics that you should hit and that is success but i think from a more high level perspective you know what do you consider success if there is even an answer for that yeah i mean i think i'm pretty uh i don't say hard on myself but when it comes to success successes again like everyone has their own definition um for me though i would say it has something to do around the word of kind of legacy it was a quote that I heard and it said, what would you want your Wikipedia page to say? Is that at the end of the day, if I could go look at my Wikipedia page and be happy about it and that I moved the needle forward and not backwards, I, that's what I would consider success. Do you consider consistency part of success? Because you can be successful in one project and fail in the next, but if you're consistent throughout, is that maybe a better definition of what success is? I don't necessarily know if I would say consistency per se. Again, like because the word success as a whole, I think is what you need to look at it. Like at the end of the day, like what is success? Are there any kind of habits or rituals or anything that you do on a daily basis to fuel your success or to kind of, uh, you know, contribute towards it? I mean, I do like nothing that's out of the ordinary. You work out a lot, right? Like gym's an important thing. Yeah, like, I mean, yeah. And then I have breakfast every morning. I work out. I mean, I don't necessarily eat the healthiest food all the time, but I still have a a pretty decent diet. I'm sure everything say. in moderation, right? Yeah. One of the things that I do do a lot, I've never been keen to reading, which is awful, I think, because every, like I should, like I've, I've tried, but I just, my attention span, just I can't, just, can't just do it, but I have the ability to listen to podcasts and listen to people who are thought leaders. I would say if I'm not grabbing one of the things I do do that I think a lot of people should start doing or think about doing is if I'm not having a lunch with someone to like connect with, to network with, to just see how they're doing, just seeing how I can help, how they can help me, et cetera. I'm watching YouTube videos of commencement speeches of like F8, which was just like the Facebook conference of Investorpedia, of Stanford online classes, of them giving lectures, just on various subjects of listening to podcasts like A167Z of Andreessen Horowitz. Because in YouTube is such a great place to, there's so much knowledge that can be shared out there um, that, that I've been, I leverage that a lot. And what kind of subjects are you interested in? How do you choose what videos or podcasts that you're going to listen to? Yeah, I follow a handful of channels when it comes to actually like when I'm talking about at lunch. So Investoropedia is one of them. Startup Grind, Stanford Graduate Business, Hartford Graduate Business, Warren Graduate Business. And then there's a bunch of ones that are recommended to me. So like just through their algorithm that they recommend 
So I'll find like random ones on there. Is there any particular subject you're interested in specifically, or you kind of just see what comes up? It really sees what sparks my interest that day, I would say. Do you find yourself coming back to certain topics? I mean, biotech, for sure. I mean, anything with regards to biotech, I'm usually kind of curious about. Uh, that's kind of been my my m- most recent kind of like passion, per se. And then I'd also think about like, like human-centered like design thinking is another one. Because a lot of my work that I'm doing around is like project program management type work and seeing what are those skills and what are what are new ways to think about problems so that might actually be a good segue into uh what you do at your management consulting firm so you work for a very large management consulting firm in the bay and you service fortune 500 companies can you tell me a little a little bit about kind of the projects that you work on or some of the things that you do in your job yeah i mean management consulting at least the way i've taken it is you do a lot of different things you may have one scope of work, but it derails into something completely different. And how do you manage that when there's no like consistent path on what you're supposed to do? So I've looked at it as I'm always looking at like, what did the next five years look like for me? Um, so what are those skills that I needed to develop in order to get where I want to be? If that's program management, if that's communication skills, if that's leadership presentation, if that's coaching, if that's following up on what, what does agile change mean? If that's following up on a new topic, if that's learning something that I don't know already, that I try to curate my current role to practice that. What about specifically on a project? If you encounter an issue that you're not familiar with how to handle that issue, because maybe you haven't encountered that before, is there some kind of technique or way that you go about figuring out what to do or what resources to utilize? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a pro- it's case by case scenario. Um, one thing that I've done well is surrounded myself with intelligent people who've succeeded this type of realm and work. And then in consulting, one of the things that we do, I think, pretty well is truly understand the root cause of the problem and figuring out why that happened and why that occurred or what that is, and then slowly dissecting it to fundamental quick wins. And then working with individuals to say, who who do I know who's done this in the past and leveraging kind of what they've done. So uh, what kind of gratification then do you get out of a project like this or just in general being a management consultant? I think because going back to like showing my value and showing my purpose to a project, they obviously pay a good amount of money for us to be there. Um, we can either kind of be penny pushers and push deliverables out, or we can actually truly make a difference in the change in the project. Once you're able to kind of show your value and show how you're a true team player and team member and that you actually want to see success of the project to continue, then that gives you the ability to start, as I alluded to earlier, kind of circumventing your role and kind of curating it into what you want it to be. So not only are you excited about what you're doing well at that specific project and client, but you're providing extreme amount of value that was not originally in your statement of work. So maybe you just talked a little bit about this, but we've had discussions about the idea or concept of meaningful work. What does that mean to you? And do you see that others necessarily don't have this same concept or are not looking for this and you are? Can you just maybe elaborate a little bit about how this impacts your job? Yeah, I mean, I think meaningful work, again, it's another one of those things, what a success. It's, It's different for everyone. 
for me, there's meaningful work on my day-to-day job. And then there's like meaningful work on like what I'm looking to do. But what is meaningful work to you though? What yeah, I mean, do you like, define so it for, as? Like if we're talking about my day-to-day job, meaningful work is again, on a, I'm on a project that's not only pushing me in, in kind of where I'm in uncomfortable situations and I need to figure out how the best to resolve and to get the most out of what I'm doing. But on top of that, that I'm not necessarily just brought in to fight a fire, but I'm brought in because they see me as a valuable team member and an asset. And then I think in consulting, a lot of the things that happen is we get pulled out of the project really early. So we've spent hours upon hours on this specific project, this specific deliverable. Then we give the deliverable and then we disappear. And it's more or less kind of seeing that in through the entirety of a project. Um, I would say it's meaningful work. And then finally, I would I would say continuous learning. So if I'm on the job and again, like when again I lose to like thinking five years in advance, what are those next steps or next skills that I need to develop as a professional? And I'm able to kind of utilize this project in order to do that and learn and learn from people because I mean, I'm I'm 29, but I'm still usually the youngest person on my project by a lot of amount of age and experience. And so I can learn from them. And especially like in the airline industry, for example, you have to have a lot of industry knowledge in order to be successful in this. So it's kind of really seeing how does that airline industry operate. So taking everything that you've kind of learned and either in school or being a management consultant, I kind of want to talk about Local Stumbler for a little bit, which is your curated travel website that you created when you came out to the Bay. My last project before I was at, my last project while I was at KPMG, I was in New York City um, and then ride New York half the time for almost a year and a half. And I was the youngest person on my project by a good 25, 20 years. So even though I was in the city, it can get lonesome at times. And one day I, well, actually going back, this was before that, my parents were going to France to go on a vacation after my grandmother died. And it had been, I don't know, 20 some odd years before they ever really went on a true vacation, just them two. And so they were asking me kind of what should they do in France? And I was pulling up books because I wanted this to be like a really special trip for them. And a lot of the things I was getting was just your generic run of the mill, go to the Eiffel Tower, go eat at this restaurant that's in every book, go do these various things. And I was thinking, man, I wish there was a way that I could find a local's perspective on how to visit Paris in France that my parents would truly enjoy because it would be that that local hole in the wall that they'd remember, not necessarily that long line that they had to wait in the Eiffel Tower when they went in to go visit France and Paris because they get that really, truly that local feel and that local experience. And during that time is when Airbnb was really kind of pushing their campaign tra- or be a local, travel like a local. So I that's where the idea originated. And what did you do to facilitate that? That's when I was in in New York f- by myself in a hotel room for so long. And I was like, I need to find something or I'm going to go insane outside of work. And so that's when I remembered this. And I kind of, I've always kind of been curious about the entrepreneurial journey. Kind of, I would still kind of consider myself an entrepreneur. 
But I said, I, it'd be interesting to kind of take this as kind of my first step and go at it, see what does this really entail. And so that's when I started kind of understanding and developing my MVP. And so what was this platform that you create? So I first used Wix, which was a free kind of online platform and kind of got my ideas kind of like whiteboarded. What does this look like? That's kind of what I use as my MVP. Spent like maybe like five bucks. Then I went to friends, families, coworkers, people at work and showed them this and kind of explained my idea of what if you could create a platform that connected people traveling to a city to locals and if understood what their local traveling experience is like. And if you could connect them, would they pay a minimal dollar amount um, to to obtain this? And so they can experience a city like a local. What would these experiences be? So for example, in Nashville, my friend Shelly, she wrote one that was a bachelorette party in Nashville for a girl's weekend trip. It kind of takes you through the steps of what to do. Where to eat, where to get cheap drinks, what to wear, what to experience, where are fun like little wine restaurants that you can bring a bottle yourself and like various things like that. And then there was other ones like it was around drinking, but there was another ones like local happy hours on like a Wednesday night or Tuesday night. And where's the best place to go grab a drink? Because like you could look on Yelp and Yelp will tell you so much, but you could go into that restaurant and then all of a sudden there'd be no one there. And it's because no one's written a Yelp review in the last like six years, you know? And it was just really getting that, like understanding that locals curated experience and getting down to kind of like when you travel somewhere, when you're trying to look for something to do, kind of like what makes you happy? Like why, why are you traveling to that specific place? Like, why are you going to Italy? Are you going to Italy to run away from something? Are you going to Italy to go try the wine? Are you going to Italy because you have no idea why? And you're just want someone to kind of like help you get there. So what was it like to be an entrepreneur? Cause that's not for the faint of heart. I mean, not everyone could just be an entrepreneur. It, it, it's, it's difficult. Can you describe that experience? And is that something that you would recommend to someone else to put it, a lot of work into a passion project? And you had an exit and you were successful at this, but not everyone is as successful or lucky. Yeah. I mean, I think when it comes to I had an exit and was successful is because one thing that I didn't do that I kind of wish I did is would have dove in. Like, that's what I think the difference between an entrepreneur and an entrepreneur is, is an entrepreneur will have a great idea and be passionate about it. And they'll dive headfirst in and quit their job and truly push everything they can in order to make this successful. An entrepreneur will have this idea and slowly teeter at the top of it and hoping that maybe this will turn into something great or maybe it'll turn into to some things. I'll find someone along the way that'll kind of push me and then I'll drop everything and and be successful in this. I would still say I was in the entrepreneur stage and probably still am. And that when I thought about this, this was, I don't even know, like maybe like now we're looking at like maybe three years ago. So this was before, this was like early Airbnb. So this is where they kind of, they already had the proven concept that like people don't want to travel in hotels anymore. And they didn't have their curated experiences, which they have now. So if I would have dove in head first with this kind of momentum that I had behind of my idea and went to go try to raise seed funding or anything like that to kind of push this forward, 
I think I would have had a different story. I'm kind of glad, I'm glad that I didn't do that at the time because when I talk about like kind of what is, what I want my Wikipedia page to say, I don't necessarily want to say founder of a travel concierge company, you know, like, I mean, it's not a bad thing to be known for. Yeah. I mean, but I'm not changing people's lives. I mean, traveling is great and it's a great way to experience things, but at the end of the day, I don't know if it would have been the best uses of my time. I see. So you decided to get out of this because there was bigger things that you felt you could have accomplished at the time or going forward. And I think it was the other idea that I was afraid to, for sure, is that I was afraid to leave my cushy job and then jump and cannonball into the deep end with a bunch of sharks, thinking that my travel concierge is better than everyone's travel. So fear played a big part in local stumbler or at least your uh, exit from local stumbler. I would say a big part. It definitely played a part though. Is that something that other entrepreneurs or entrepreneurs should expect when going into something like this? I think when you see things on like shark tank or you see things on, you hear the success stories of like Snapchat or Airbnb or anything really in San Francisco, you hear it all, all the time here in San Francisco is that everyone hears about the success they don't know everything that went behind the scenes and the failures and the the lost relationships and friendships and like missed events and families and and the time where they were struggling and didn't think they could pay next rent or the time where they lost their best friend or something like that or lost an event in their life that they can never get back and from the outside in, we think it's, oh my God, they just had like an amazing exit and they're redefining the, the social media world. They're being disruptive. Yeah. They're like, they're like a, a God or something, a superhero. But in the background, they're really, they're just normal human beings that took it the biggest amount of risk that they could and were able to be successful. But like, you think about this, there's thousands and thousands and thousands and probably millions of people that are taking those same risks and not that successful and not, not that ambitious. And they didn't get lucky or they, this didn't happen or they had to leave because their parents got sick or they had to do something else. And some other factor came in and then that's why they're not Evan Spiegel or Brian Chesky or Mark Zuckerberg or those people like that. And, but granted, not every idea is a unicorn level idea. I mean, I think execution a bit is a big part, but not everyone has an idea or the know-how or the resources to do some of these great things. I agree. I mean, I think a lot of it, obviously, you, <coughs> you have to be able to execute and you have to be able to... I mean, I'm a little more on the pessimistic side than optimistic side of it. Um, only The only reason I would say is because that that version isn't necessarily spoken about as much. So you would learn more from your failures than your successes? Oh, absolutely. One of the things though that I would say helped me kind of define in my career, when my first jobs at KPMG, my first project, I started before September. So our year end was what, 931? So I had one project before year end, before I got a review about my year end review. And so I guess I started in like January. Um, or sorry, June. So from June to September, I had this one project. Um, I still don't remember to date if I did a bad job. Um, I'm 95% sure I didn't. Um, I still may have been that young kid coming out of school, just got a job at KPMG thinking that 
I could run the world and you're a hot shit. Yeah. In other words. Yeah. Um, and I got a review and I got a two out of five. And as you know, one is the worst one is like pretty much you're fired tomorrow. Two is you're on like probation kind of, um, well, no, sorry. No, one is great. Sorry. One is great. Two is amazing. And then, Four is you're on probation. Five is you're fired. So I got a four. <laughs> let, let me go back. That's a big difference <laughs> yeah. there. So I got a four um, on this project. And it was my year-end review too. So on like my KPMG transcripts, like it was my first year and showed that I had a four. And I was like, there was absolutely no way I should have gotten a four. Like I, I know what four performers are. And even though at that time I may thought I was hot shit, I definitely did not act that way. I think this individual may have had vendetta, whatever reason it was, I don't want to come up with excuses, but I got a four. Um, but after that, it was a really, really rude awakening in my career that I need to perform at another level higher than I know I can perform and that other thing, others think I can perform. So pretty much outperform my performance. Um, and because of that, for... The six years I was at KPMG, I never got anything lower than a two, and I'd probably say that I or anything lower than a three, and I'd probably say I averaged a two throughout. Where after like when I got promoted, um, one of the like at my promotion dinner things, one of the things that they brought up was how I got a four my first year, and how they thought that that I was not going to like succeed and like that that there was no way that this individual who got a four was going to be able to get promoted and kind of move the ranks and maneuver KPMG like I did. So I would say that was a really big turning point in my life, which I'm glad happened really early on because if it would have happened later, I think I would have, would have I wouldn't have learned and adapted as quickly. So learning from your failures is a key, uh, metric to success or at least to uh, substantial change, I guess. So that uh, brings up another topic I want to talk about with you today, Taylor. Um, it's in the management consulting realm, but instead of it geared towards assisting Fortune 500 companies with some of their organizational problems, you want to uh, reach out to startups can you uh, kind of talk about this little project that you're working on, maybe what it's called, uh, the concept behind it? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I moved out to San Francisco, I was trying to, like every single person out here, trying to find out where where do I belong in this disruption, this innovation, this change. And I probably spent a good like year and a half or a year or so trying to figure out about that. I was able to be introduced um, when I started my new, after I left KPMG and went to an, another consulting company, I was able to find an, a contact that really kind of showed me this light of this new role that was kind of like the underground hidden gem of like the tech area, like masterminds. Okay. What was that role? It was called a chief of staff. The individual that I met was named Tyler Paris, who, who was an executive coach who'd been performing the chief of staff role for the last eight or nine years. And if you Google chief of staff outside of the White House, his name will probably be in the top 
the researches or so. And to my understanding, he actually trains a lot of the high-level chief of staffs at a lot of these tech firms in San Francisco. Exactly, yeah. So he's he's very well-known and well-versed in this. You got an opportunity to engage with him, and he kind of chatted with you about uh, what he does? Yeah, so yeah, so I was able to kind of meet with him, and he was able to explain the role. Um, and then I did a lot of research on my own. And kind of saying, all right, is is this chief of staff role first? Is it a real role? Um, the only time I've really heard about it is like West Wing. There's a show about it. Um, really on the White House kind of government area, there's always been a chief of staff, an individual supporting a, like the mayor or sorry, the um, president or a high government official. Um, I never heard it actually being utilized in a organizational. Um, so I started doing a lot of research and lo and behold, there's chief of staff everywhere. Um, there's chief of staff in Google, there's chief of staff in Microsoft, there's chief, chief of staff Adobe, there's chief of staff in a small non-for-profit, there's chief of staff everywhere. Um, so it's a widespread role now that's becoming very popular. And do you know why that is? Yeah. I mean, I think what a lot of individuals at the executive level, so let me go back. Um, let me define what the chief of staff role is, and then I think it, it'll be an easy way to provide more context on on why I think the chief of staff role is, is out there. Um, sure, please do. So the chief of staff is an individual who supports usually an executive, um, kind of the way I look at it is kind of four pillars. So there's project program management. So looking at what are all the programs that are operating at at an organization and providing a purview overview um, and being able to provide quick status updates to your executive so they have an understanding of what's running. Um, the other one is being able to provide like executive communications and executive presentations. So executives on a normal day-to-day -day basis are presenting to stakeholders, presenting to investors, pre trying to raise funding in the startup community, doing various other things. And they need an individual who can hurry up create something, provide them a quick overview and context and give that to them. Um, another one is around special projects. So like if an executive is curious on, Hey, what is this growth initiative? Um, can we go into this and what does this look like? And they're able to do that special project and understand that and provide a quick high level overview. Um, and then kind of like the third one, it's around kind of keeping a, like a pulse on the organization. So how's the culture going? Like, what are people feeling? Being like that personal kind of EA, which EAs have always been able to do a really good job. That's why usually a lot of COS, EAs turn into COSs, um, is but really having that personal connection to the company and individuals a part of that company, kind of being able to be like that voice of reason, the voice of context, not necessarily like that public figurehead, but an individual who they know if they talk, a change can occur. So then what do you want to do knowing how uh, prevalent and important this chief of staff role is? One thing that I've seen is that not many people really think they sometimes need a chief of staff. They're like, oh, I, I can do this myself. But what a chief of staff is able to do is able to free up time of an executive. So managing work streams and kind of being a bullshit filter a little bit? Yeah, I guess you could say that, but it's more or less being able to free up time of an executive where he or she can focus on more strategic level priorities um, than having to throw together a communication or having to 
understand where this specific project is or having to understand, hey, there's a small project that I probably shouldn't be focusing my time and effort on, even though it's, it's really important to me. I'm kind of curious on how it's going or how it would go. And it's freeing up time for them, allowing them to do other things. It's more or less thinking, where can the business go? Who's, in it, who's a key a key stakeholder? Who's a key client that I need to go visit? Um, kind of really maybe fighting a larger fire that needs to be fought or then at the end of the day, being a human being and spending time with more of their family and, and truly being able to divert business in life. So then what are you doing about this? Like, how are you uh, facilitating uh, this role, I guess? Yeah. So with that, with all that context, um, I saw that this role is extremely prevalent, but what I didn't see was any organizations being able to identify these individuals and then place them in in companies that are searching for we know that this role exists within large organizations. Um, why does it exist? It exists because organizations are going through large changes and transformations on a daily basis, that executives are being bombarded by various other orders that are coming down. What is the difference between that and a startup? Aren't startups going through large transformations? Aren't they even actually maybe going even through more transformations because there's more incumbents coming into their space? There's large heavy hitters trying to push them down in the ground. There's new products that are being constantly rolled out. There's new rounds of funding that they need to find. There's new clients that they need to go attack. So isn't the executive being pushed and pulled into other multiple various directions and would it be beneficial for this chief of staff role to be there to kind of support that transformation and that change? So you try and identify and further implement a chief of staff type of position within a startup organization. Exactly. Yeah. So what what we're working on is not only identifying those areas that the individual needs an, another support figure that a lot of people are like, oh, I'm, I can do this or I can do all these activities myself. And But that's not what we're selling. We're, we're more or less selling time is that we're selling freeing up time for an executive to spend more time on doing other things. And so from my conversations amongst the Bay and amongst people performing these roles and amongst the organizations that have this role is that we needed to go to kind of from the startup community at the um, venture firm, going to a venture portfolio company saying, hey, as I spoke about those transformations earlier, where do you see that happening in your companies? And they usually respond everywhere, like every single one of my, our companies that we've invested in. So you've had a lot of positive feedback from having discussions with uh, VC firms. Yeah, um, I would say from the VC firms that I've spoken with, yes. I mean, I'm we're still working on identifying more of them. Um, I think, again, it's, it's not only identifying the specific fit on firm. It's like I always call it people market fit. Because at the end of the day, I think a handful of consulting firms kind of neglect their people, um, where I think consulting firms, your only asset that you have, your only thing that you're selling is your individuals, your people that you work with. So you need to keep them at the fore center. So it's not only finding the right company and the right fit, but finding the right person for that fit and making sure that they're okay with that and happy about what they're doing and finding that kind of what we talked to, like, and is there kind of an end game or vision that you have? See, like, what do you hope to accomplish? Yeah. So one of the other reasons why I love the chief of staff role, working as a chief of staff, it provides you that ability to mentor underneath someone who's an executive power in an executive position that I think a lot of people, not everyone, but a lot of people aspire to be. Um, so the thought process is if they can sit behind and work 
hand in hand with an executive to transform an industry, launch a business and various other things, they can see what success looks like and how to operate in under how to operate in these times of turmoil, change and various things and being able to identify root causes of success. So if we can create that network of individuals, um, I think there's a lot of companies that go through a lot of ups and downs and run into a lot of similar problems. That if we can create a network of individuals on how do you think about that? How do you solve that? What do you do to combat that? How do you make sure that that doesn't happen again? If you can create people who are directly at that strategic level role, not only are you going to be able to push companies forward into doing that, but you're also being able to create the kind of the future leaders tomorrow, those chief of staff. So they're able to go work on this small startup that all of a sudden blew up into another great unicorn and then was able to kind of have an exit. And the the picture I always give is Reed Hoffman's chief of staff, um, Ben Kessnercha. Um He was when Reed Hoffman was at LinkedIn, Greylock Partners came and said, Reed, you're way too focused on the product. You need you need someone to help kind of more or less align where you should be focusing on. And so that's when he met Ben Casanocha. Him and Ben became great friends. They wrote two books, Lean In and The Startup of You. Lean In actually was written by Sheryl Sandberg, but it's called The Startup of You. And there's one other book. Um, and then from there, they were able to Ben kind of followed Reed throughout like Greylock Partners and various other things. And he actually just um, opened up a fund with the first uh, employee of Product Up. And so now they have a small $50 million fund that they're working on. So it's kind of, it's kind of showing like the, what a chief of staff role can turn into. And so again, going back, if you could create staff and have people perform this level of role, you're talking about a network of the future leaders of tomorrow. And that's the, overall vision so you're shaping silicon valley essentially by transforming these individuals or these companies i wouldn't say necessarily i wouldn't i would say silicon valley is pretty small but isn't silicon valley the litmus test if something works here it's probably going to work uh, throughout the rest of the country that there have been people who have said that for sure yeah i mean i think again this role started in dc and it's gone throughout organizations i know on the West Coast because I have contacts in these organizations that have the chief of staff role, but it's it's all over the place. And I think this chief of staff role will be more and more prevalent um, as we move forward. Well, that certainly sounds like a very interesting idea. And I wish you the best uh, with Voxley. You have to uh, give me some updates, come back on the podcast again and uh, share what you've learned and how it's kind of progressed uh, over your time working on it. Um, so you are a big fan of kind of unplugging from the natural, not the natural world, but the electronic world where sometimes you kind of go into this hibernation mode. Um, can you kind of talk about, uh, what it's like to kind of disconnect from that and how it helps you to just like reset yourself? Yeah. I mean, I don't necessarily know if I'm ever truly disconnected. I would say there, I am disconnected in work life. Um, I'm not necessarily disconnected from my technology, but I'm disconnected from, I know when work ends and my personal life begins. So the two don't blend together. You're not always working on something or thinking about some idea. The wheels aren't always turning. When I think of, when I am quoting work, um, I'm thinking of work of like my nine to five job. 
Um, when I'm thinking about like my passion, like what I'm passionate about, I'm always thinking about that for sure. Um, but like, I'm always talking to people at bars, dinners, anywhere that I am, like walks, anything like that. I mean, you're probably everywhere cause you're quite the social person. You always seem to be doing something. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that I don't consider that work though. Like I still consider that personal because I enjoy those conversations. So do you feel it's necessary to kind of disconnect from, you know, work as, as you said, and focus on like personal things? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, again, one thing that I learned working at KPMG was you can get inundated with work and your personal life, you don't really have one anymore. Um, that was kind of one of the reasons I kind of left KPMG was even though I was able to distinguish work in my life when you're traveling for work it, it it's hard to distinguish the two especially monday through thursday monday through friday is that i would leave monday morning to go to my client site and on a plane and i'd work 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 and then i'd have some time not working all the time but i have some time to disconnect and look on facebook linkedin whatever to google random things but then at the end of the day when my day was over i would go back to the hotel and I wouldn't have my friends to go hang out with. I wouldn't be able to like go grab a drink with a person that I met the other weekend, or I wasn't able to go attend like a soccer event or various other things. I would just be at the hotel and I wouldn't have anything else to do except work. So, and I would do that Monday through Thursday and then Friday I have off and then I have, I have my weekend with my friends because I already work so much. And then I would go redo the same thing and just turn into a continuous Monday through Friday was all work and no personal life. And then the weekend was personal life. And then Monday through Friday was all work and the week was personal life. And it just got into a routine of things when I realized is that there should be a more or less combination between the two. The balance of work and life. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's, and that's when I realized that, that this, constant travel even though like on the outside in it looks all sexy and looks super fun like oh you get to travel to all these different places but at the end of the day when you're traveling your friends are moving on with their life and you're still kind of just continuing with your work you know and and you you get passed up yeah no absolutely um so if there's three pieces of advice that you can give your younger self say freshman year of college just as you're you know coming up into the world pretty much what would they be family and friends should be at the core of everything to not neglect family and friendships um i'd probably say family first friendship second um number two is my most of my career has been focusing on why do people operate the way that they do like from a human capital perspective i would have liked to know that a lot earlier um, f figuring out why do people tick the way that they do and what makes them happy, what makes them sad and being able to improve your EQ as well as your IQ. I think that's super important. That's really neglected a lot of the times too, especially with technology because you can easily be, think you know someone because you, your Facebook friends, your Snapchat friends, you think you know everything about them when you actually know their, their exterior, not their interior. Um, and then... The third is brace change and go after it. So like if, like, for example, like for me. So taking risks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like in, while you're still young, like go travel to this foreign country 
even though you're the only one there or the only one you know that's going or go move to New York, even though you don't know anyone or go chase after that idea that you had, even though everyone's saying no. Those are, uh, I think, good pieces of advice. And I think uh, if you knew them a little sooner then you maybe could have done things a little differently. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, when I spoke to you earlier, I don't really have any regrets and I think I always knew those. So it's more like you're always learning and you learn from your past experiences and they help you in your future regardless. Yeah. I think, I mean, I would have, of course, I think everything happens for a reason, which sounds super cliche, but I don't necessarily regret much of my life. So I would have liked to hear those coming from myself though in the future, just because it would have been pretty cool, but <laughs> fair enough, Taylor. And then uh, what is one of the best purchases that you've made for under $100 uh, recently? Probably say my Amazon Prime. Okay. Can you explain why? You order a lot of things off Amazon? Oh, yeah, absolutely. What kind of things? Um, everything and anything. I mean, I, there's, not, there's nothing that you can't order. I mean, is there something secretive that you don't want people to know that you're ordering off Amazon? Is no, I mean... I. Anyone can view my shopping cart. That's quite all right. I mean, I just order like anything, like protein powder was the last thing I just ordered. So in the show notes, I'm going to post a link to Taylor Shoddy's uh, wish list on Amazon, and there's nothing going to, you know, risque on there. I don't. I actually don't hold anything in my shopping cart um, because one of my friends works for the analytics group of Amazon, and they utilize your shopping cart um, to understand your consumer buying behavior. Um, I, even though I already know that they probably know me pretty well from all the purchases that you make. Yeah. And also if I put something in my shopping cart, I'm usually one of those individuals, I either buy it or I don't, I don't just put it in there and just stare at it. Yeah. I mean, you can, sure. You can have access to my nothing in my shopping cart. <laughs> all right. Well, I'll make sure to, uh, like I said, include that in the show notes. And if you decide to add something to your, uh, Amazon cart, then people will be free to see it. Or purchase it. Or purchase it. If I put something in my Amazon shopping cart, will you buy it for me, Mitch? <laughs> I mean, we'll uh, we'll see about that one. <laughs> Maybe, Taylor. Maybe one of them may have been a Vegas flight. <laughs> <laughs> That's possible. All right. Well, thank you for uh, chatting with me today, Taylor, uh, and being on Interesting People, Interesting Things. Um, I think we had a nice little discussion, get to know some of uh, basically your, your life story, and I think it helped to... Uh, open up uh, some real ideas of where people can focus their effort. I know it certainly got me thinking about a lot of the things about being an entrepreneur or just trying different jobs and careers. And I hope all the listeners out there uh, have uh, some similar uh, feedback and, and thoughts about that. So thank you for being on the show and we'll have to uh, have you back at some point. Absolutely. Thanks, Mitch.